This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people are saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. Alongside Guy Johnson, I'm Jonathan Farrow. The losses continue to build. The FTSE at the close down by 3.5% in the United States through the halfway point of the trading day. The S&P 500 down by 1.7%. On a whole range of benchmarks, we have a correction of around about 10% from the recent highs. And that 10% move, Guy, has happened in just five, six days been pretty brutal hasn't it and it's been on big volume a lot of people have been exiting some fairly chunky positions um are they willing to dip their toe back in the water there was an attempt uh, at a uh, recovery a little while ago seems to have uh, fizzled a little bit the big question i guess now is that investors have to ask themselves are we still in a bull market for stocks if we do kind of stabilize at some point do stocks ultimately still end the year higher or are we done And I think that's a question that I'm beginning to hear a little bit more and more now as to whether or not actually this feels like a bull market. Uh, And uh, I've heard two very conflicting opinions. BNP Paribas Asset Management saying, yep, stocks still go higher from here, uh, or they they still still, uh, kind of move into fresh record high territory. Uh, I was talking to Sri Kumar a little bit earlier on. His his, uh, view uh, is, is, no, we're done. That's it bull market over. That's a big call and I think it's premature because you need to see at least a couple of things happen and I'll name two right now. You need to see in the US at least economic weakness appear in services and really start to bite into the labour market as well. And I also think you need a simultaneous loss of faith in the Fed put. I don't know if we're there yet. I don't know if we're going there. But I do think it's a little bit premature to make a call like that with conviction and confidence at this point given how limited the information flow still is. Yeah, I think that probably is a reasonable a reasonable point of view. Um, Goldman Sachs saying bond markets go to the the US ten year goes to one percent. What is what is a one percent US ten year telling you about the trajectory of where we go from here? Now, clearly some of that is flow. Clearly some of that is is safe havens. Clearly some of that is is a desire uh, just to find a pulse in a storm. But nevertheless, one percent on a US ten year like 1.3, I'm not sure it actually makes much difference. But nevertheless, the kind of, the, the extrapolation from that has to be that the US is is, is heading for a recession. Uh, and if you look at the recession metrics, John, they are rising for 2020. We'll talk about the data in just a moment. Let's get you up to speed on the top news. Here is Charlie Pell. And I thank you very much, Jonathan Farrow. Indeed, a wild day in U.S. markets. S&P 500 index have been down 3.5%. But as Guy mentioned, we've been making up some of the losses in U.S. trading with the S&P now down by 1.6%. To give you the numbers, S&P down 48, 3,068. NASDAQ down 1.8%. Dow Industrials down 413 points right now. That is a drop of 1.5%. Bottom line, though, all three major American equity indexes losing more than 10% from their last peaks, entering a technical market correction on an interday basis. Coronavirus cases are climbing outside of China. There are mounting concerns over the public and economic impact of the health crisis. Case in point, El Al suspending flights to Italy through March 14th because of the coronavirus. And Wizz Air Holdings, Eastern Europe's biggest discount airline, canceling some.
some flights in the period between March 11th and April 2nd because of a drop in demand for air travel. But on the ground in China, Starbucks reopening some stores. CEO Kevin Johnson says 85% of the coffee giant stores in China are now operating after the company saw early signs of a recovery from the coronavirus outbreak in the region. Again, recapping here, U.S. equities, they are trading lower with the S&P down now by 1.6%. Jonathan Farrell, back to you now here in New York. Charlie Pellet, sir, thank you very much. Really pleased to say that we have Bloomberg's Michael McKee in the studio with us to help us get our hands around some of these issues. It's been really interesting the last 24 hours or so, listening to central bankers. In fact, I'd say 48 hours, starting with Vice Chair Richard Clarida, reluctant to change his message. The central bank in South Korea not cutting interest rates at a time when many people thought they would. And in the last couple of minutes, the Federal Reserve, or rather the ECB, speaking to the Financial Times, this is from Christine Lagarde, the ECB president, that the ECB was monitoring the outbreak very carefully, but she said it was not yet at the stage where it would have a lasting impact on inflation and therefore require a monetary policy response. Mike, your view on the role of central banks in an environment like the one we're in right now? Well, my view (coughs) would be that central banks will follow their mandates. The ECB's mandate is to keep inflation uh, under control, Uh, the Fed, maximum employment, and stable prices. But that's not the view of people on Wall Street. The view of people on Wall Street is the Fed is supposed to bail us out any time we might lose money, the uh, so-called put your chairman's name in put. And so you're seeing all these increasing calls for the Fed to uh, take action. But uh, you know the action they take wouldn't do much in the case of a virus like this. There's a new report out from the folks at J.P. Morgan that said uh, even if we do get some inflation, it'll be very limited. So at this point, it doesn't seem that there's a lot for them to do, except if you want to make the argument they should prop up the stock market because um, people will lose money and they'll get afraid and that would be an additional uh, shock to demand. If how, how do you think the reaction function works for the Fed? If the market goes down further from here, do you think the Fed will have any choice but to cut rates? Yeah, I think in this case, they can push back. Um, It's not been a disorderly decline, so they don't have a market function issue at this point. They can make the case that the U.S. economy, you know, absent this, is in good shape. You look at the durable goods orders numbers today, and they were pretty good. Um, We don't have enough data, and uh, they have a, a number of concerns uh, one is that if you cut rates now and the virus goes away fairly quickly, then you've got very low rates, tailwind to the economy going into the election, and you can't raise them uh, because of the political concerns. So um, the timing is difficult with the election this year as well. I think they'll push back as long as they can, as long as things are not disorderly, and they'll make the argument that, hey, stocks do go down. You just don't remember it. (laughs) Let me ask you this, Mike. To what extent at the moment do you think policymakers are waiting this out because they want to see if it fades quickly versus they're aware that there's not much they can do about it? Do you think it's the former or the latter? I think they're combined. I mean, they're waiting it out because there's not much they can do about it, but they don't want to go out and make that case and say we're helpless. If things really fall apart, 
one of the things that one of the, the and the things the Fed has in its quiver is that their credibility. Uh, they can go out and say, we're going to do something about it, and, and hopefully people would believe it. That was one of the reasons that QE worked in the initial uh, tranches is because people believed the Fed was doing something unique that would work. Um, I suspect if they did anything, if you were going to do anything um, or needed to do anything, QE might be something you would look at because then that puts additional liquidity into the system. And if you've got any liquidity problems, that could be one way of solving it. How much attention do you think the Fed is paying to what's happening in the credit markets right now? Oh, they're definitely watching it. But again, it's been orderly. It's yep. it's largely flows. And there isn't much they can do about it. And in a way, it takes away the immediate need for the Fed to act. What you would say in a normal situation is look at where uh, rates are. The Fed has to ratify that in the markets. But nobody thinks really that the markets are pricing in a recession at this point. Um, you know, that's the standard read when you get this low. But it, it, if it flows, then it's not a recession call as such. And it, it hasn't been sustained long enough. So uh, they can just let the market do the work for them. We'll continue this conversation next on the program. The crucial data points you need to watch in the next 48 hours. We'll do that with Michael McKee on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area and around the world on all of your Bloomberg devices. Um, We are still with Mike McKee. Uh, Bloomberg's Mike McKee to give us a take on what is happening with these markets and the kind of policy response that we can expect to them. Mike, um, we are hearing from a lot of companies that they don't have much visibility now, that they are um, unable, therefore, to provide kind of accurate guidance. In terms of the impact that this is going to have on policymakers, what do you think it will be? Usually, um, I suspect that the, the Fed listens a great deal to what companies are telling them about how the economy is actually functioning at the moment. But I'm hearing more and more companies saying, do you know what? I, Q, Q1 could be a complete write-off. We don't know what Q2 is going to look like. How are they going to react to that? Well, I've talked to a number of Fed officials about that very thing uh, over the last week, and yet that's what they're hearing from people. But going into the year, companies were more optimistic than they had been because of some of the trade deals, and so they had plans to ramp up some of their spending. So the question for the Fed is, do you react right now cut rates, then all of a sudden you get this massive boom back when the spending that was that, that was put off in the first quarter rebounds in the second quarter. Uh, that's why they're really in no hurry, because they're not sure yet what's going to happen. I talked to one Fed official who said there was a company in their district who uh, can't get their equipment from China because they can't get the power cords, a 14-cent you know, uh, a, a piece of, a, uh, of of the equipment. Well, when China comes back, there's all this stuff sitting there. They put the power cords in the box and they send them back. And all of a sudden you're in business again. That's the question is how fast will all this come back? And that's where they don't have any visibility. They're not going to be concerned about the fact that companies' profits are affected one way or another. And in theory, they shouldn't be worried about the stock market uh, unless something goes really pear-shaped. It gets disorderly. Um, So, you know, again, they wait. Let's talk about the data, shall we? We're going to get some Chinese PMIs tomorrow evening into Saturday morning. Always interesting to get the breakdown of how some of the local banks see things and how some of the banks on Wall Street see things. 
The estimate for China manufacturing PMI tomorrow night into Saturday morning, depending on what your time zone is, 45.0. But when you break it down, the estimates are actually quite interesting. And I don't know if you've done this yet, Mike. Shanghai Securities see this coming in at 50.1 for the month of February. BNP Paribas are looking for a 33 print on PMI. Wide dispersion. (laughs) What what kind of indication signal can we take? From that data out of China tomorrow? Well, I think the, the first indication is that Chinese data are notoriously unreliable. And the second would be that the chi- China has an incentive to have better numbers than uh, they might actually be. Uh, but if we see a contraction, and we should see a contraction, then it's a question of how bad it is and maybe what some of the commentary might be because everybody's expecting it. So it should, in theory, be priced in. Uh, interesting thing, interesting timing for the Chinese is that this PMI comes out on the weekend and you can't trade it till Monday. So there'll be a lot of chance for commentary and analysis. This is the official government PMI, yeah, uh, the, which is which is largely state-owned enterprises and the big companies. The the Kaijin comes out next week, which is the, more the foreign-oriented export companies. Can I ask a mechanical question? How do you put this data together in China right now? <laughs> Who do you survey? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, presumably they survey. A number of the larger companies um, for the state PMI, and uh, it's hard to know what kind of accurate uh, number it is because if you're a Chinese company and you know Xi Jinping is worried about you getting your people back to work and you know it makes China look bad, this is a sentiment survey. Are things worse than they were? So uh, you have to say they're worse than they were, but how bad do you say they are? You survey the one factory that's open, I guess, <laughs> and you ask them how it is. Are we going to find out? We'll hopefully get a breakdown of how some of this data was put together. Mike, fantastic to see you. A busy time for everyone and a tragic time for many across the planet as well. The conversation will continue with Kamal Sri Kumar on the bond market with Guy Johnson next on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Uh, it is 18 minutes past five in the city of London. So earlier today, Kamal Sri Kumar, president and founder of Sri Kumar Global Strategies, sat down uh, with myself and Bloomberg's Vonnie Quinn, and we basically discussed the stock market sell-off uh, and the policy action that the market is expecting from the Fed. Now, he predicts that the central bank will cut three times this year in response to this stock market sell-off. I've been saying for quite some time the 10-year yield is going down, I think, uh it was 150 was my target. We have beaten that. We have gone below. And I think 1% and going 1% below, uh, below the 1% figure for the 10-year, I think is very much there in terms of expectation for the 10-year yield. The 30-year, I think, would go to the 150 level. These both would be unprecedentedly low figures. As far as the Fed is concerned, I'm I've always believed that the Fed reacts to the stock market. It is not really oriented toward the economy or inflation. When the stock market corrects, as it did in late 2018, uh, the Fed pivoted from talking about three rate increases in 2019 to three rate cuts in 2019. So I'm expecting three rate cuts. One of them could be a 50 basis point cut. And I think Fed may at some point restart quantitative easing 
in terms of starting to buy bonds, and that would push the 10-year yield even lower. So look for about 75 basis points to 1% as the next target for the 10-year. Sri, that is a phenomenal forecast. If that indeed does happen, does that not do the Federal Reserve's job for it? Would the Fed actually need to cut in that scenario? Well, you might well ask, what is the Fed doing? What is its function? They think that just because they exist, they have to do something, Bonnie. And they, do, they did not do all of the quantitative easing after 2008. The economy would have come back. But they did. And I think that worsened the situation in a number of ways. So right now, as you quite correctly said, even though the market is going to push down the bond yield, they believe that they need to add to the stimulus, and that is quantitative easing. It does not make sense to me either, but we are talking about what the Fed would do, not what would make sense. Sri, when it comes to stocks, are we still in a bull market? I don't think so. I think the, the bull market was going to end, and you always wondered, Guy, what was going to end the whole process. And if it was not the coronavirus, it might have been eventually high valuations and fear that would have done it, would have turned the market. But now I think we are in a very veritable a bear market, and there is more to come. What kind of levels are you, are you talking about? 3,000 on the S&P, obviously, is a level people are now watching very carefully. By, by the end of this year, are, are we significantly below where we are now or kind of where we are now? Where, I, how, much of an, how much of a sell-off are we going to see? Well, we are at 30.43 on the S&P, Guy. That's only 43 points above the 3,000 figure. My expectation is that you would cross... 3,000 before too long. I don't want to say what day, but if the coronavirus spread in the United States happens to be verified, and what we found yesterday in California, which is unrelated to any travel-related person, and if that's how it spreads, and that means there is more in the society currently existing, none of that is discounted in the S&P 500 prices, which is why my expectation is it will go below 3,000 and it is hard to say what, where it drops, but 3,000 is an easy number for me, Guy. Well, so this is the 34th sell-off of more than 6% since 1953, and obviously not all, not even very many of those resulted in a stock market that was lower a year later. If there is indeed an outbreak in the United States, is everything priced in at this point or do we get a further sell-off? Yeah, I think you get a further sell-off when you find out that the coronavirus has spread. But there is going to be a bottom. Equities are going to be a buy and bonds at some point would become a sell, but that is not yet. Where would that come? I would expect, Vani, it will be six to nine months from now. I stick to the forecast I made on your program that the U.S. recession will begin in mid-2020, so that's not too far away. And once that happens, and we are about six to eight months into that recession of 2020 to 2021, that is when the bottom would be reached on the equity market. It would be a tremendous buy after that. Sri, if you take away coronavirus, the data hasn't been all that bad. In fact, if anything, it's been quite good, including this morning's data. So if you take this sort of black swan event out of calculations, would you still say we were headed for recession? And if so, what would you base that on? Yeah, that's a good question, Vani. First of all, uh, all was not good in terms of the overall U.S. economy. Yes, the housing market has been strong, 
but there are signs of weakening already taking place with the consumer. Uh, the unemployment rate has been low, but on the other hand, the real wage increase year on year has just come to a zero figure at the end of 2019, meaning you have a job, but your real wages have not been increasing. And that has been decelerating over the years. This has been the crux of the problem of the economic recovery since 2008. The stock market has done fabulously and wage earners have not done well at all. And that is, again, a big issue. So when you look at capital investment, that was already being hit by all the trade-related uncertainties. And even without a coronavirus, the trade uncertainties would have continued. Remember, there is a threat of auto tariffs on, on Europe, on uh, tariffs on cheese and wine as well. And anything can change with a presidential tweet and you can have trade uncertainty brought back again. All of these matter for the economy. It's not just the coronavirus. Goldman Sachs also, Shree, saying that there'll be no earnings growth this year. Again, you agree with that? I think that looks like a good bet, uh, Guy, because I think with all of the slowdown in the economy and the fact that uh, earnings were already under pressure before, no change in earnings looks like a good call for 2020. Uh, that was uh, Kumar Shri Kumar, president and founder of Shri Kumar Global Strategies, talking to Vonnie Quinn and myself a little bit earlier on. Uh, the S&P currently trading at 30.73. We're only down by 1.4%, 43 points off where we started the day. Up next, we'll carry on the market conversation. Luke Carl is going to join us. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. And this is Bloomberg Radio. It's his anthem. It means he's arrived. I'm not singing along to this one today. Why not? It's a I don't want to song. Get, you know, that, that guy made me gun shy. The guy Turn who it up, tweeted it. No. Turn it up. Let it go on a little bit longer. There you we know, go. And here we go. You know, periods like this, Charlie, you need a little bit of light-hearted fun just to settle things down. Yeah, well, judging by what's going on in the markets today, uh, I could almost agree with you on but But no, I'm so gun-shy from the guy who got on Twitter to criticize us for telling the story you about Dexy's like Midnight Run. Uh, we do, and it's like, uh, you know... But it's, what it's about like, the new listeners that have never heard the story about uh, no, Dexy's no, Midnight no, but, it, but it's like Groundhog Day, because guess who walked in? Luke Kawa! I know, but people uh, uh, don't understand what's behind the name of the band. <laughs> I know, but it's like so many other you know names of bands. I think it's important in programming not to just cater to, to those that to, know. To those that know, you also yeah. have to include those that yeah. don't. Well, so I, I, you've now got to explain okay. it. Well, I know the, the song goes back what thirty years, forty okay, years. Yeah, I, I know, mean, but the band itself. What yeah, did they well, used to say Dexy, about it, the origins of the name? What's it, it mean? It, it has something to do with drugs. Uh, Dexy, Scandal. as in Dexy's Midnight Runner. That's scandalous. Uh, being a shorthand for some kind of drug that. Uh, that do I you don't like know, how so. I can make you do this every single time? <laughs> I know, I know, and I feel for our <laughs> listeners just because there's so much going on. I think people really want to know. All right, so here's what's going on. I do want to begin with J.P. Morgan Chase now joining Goldman Sachs in cutting profit estimates for the S&P 500. The rapid spread of the coronavirus has made equity strategists of the two firms slash their outlook for American corporate profit growth as the epidemic erodes revenue and dents the global economy. It has been a wild day in U.S. markets. S&P 500 index have been down 3.5%, making up some of that. All three major American equity indexes lost more than 10% from their last peaks. Uh, 
uh, last peaks, entering a technical market correction on an interday basis, all about the number of coronavirus cases. Starbucks said to be reopening stores in China. CEO Kevin Johnson says 85% of the coffee giant stores in China are now operating after the region saw early signs of a recovery from the coronavirus outbreak in the region. That is the latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrell, don't make me do it. Back to you now I'm here not going in New to. York. I do want to talk to you about airlines, though, and I know Guy's going to have a lot to say about this as well. JetBlue, full disclosure, I am Mosaic, which is their top tier, um, and I'm a big fan of the airline, so take that with a little pinch of salt when you hear me say whatever I've got to say. So you can sneer when I walk past you as I'm boarding the plane. I got an email from JetBlue yesterday and I understand that everyone who's ever travelled JetBlue and they have their email address also got that email that you can now have free changes and free cancellations for any flights that are booked over the next two weeks. It was a real sign that bookings, even in the United States on a domestic airline, must be dropping, Charlie. Correct. And travel must be rolling over. Correct. Yesterday we had the big story about Nestle uh, cancelling all corporate travel. Today we had the story about L'Oreal doing a similar thing as well. Yes, these airlines are going to be hurting. And uh, you know what? And just too, just in terms of the economic impact, why are you stopping travel? Why are you not going to a place? Well, you're not going to go and stay in a hotel. You're not going to go to a conference. The ripple effect, and the, the, the people then who work at those hotels, they they may see jobs being cut, and that is where the economic impact starts to ripple through. I, I think the real big question here that we have to worry about is how much plane travel is Charlie Pellet going to have to do <laughs> in the second half of the year to keep his platinum gold status? There, there you that go. Is, <laughs> uh, you know, no, sir. And I, you know, basically, I got a goal of basically half a dozen new airports a year. Emphasis on new airports. Got to be year. new airports every year. Yeah, that's that's what I like to. You know, if I if I can fly into Oakland instead of flying into San Francisco, I'll fly into Oakland. If I can fly into to Luton instead of Stansted, I'll fly into Luton. Do you know he's got a really nice. There's a lot of good airports in China right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard and that not too. Crowded. Do you know he's got a really good airport, Charleston, South Carolina. Never been there. Lovely airport. Yeah, very cool. I've been there. Yep, I've been there. Ahead of the right. South Carolina primary. I'm later. curious. I'm curious. Why did Guy Johnson wind up in Charleston, South Carolina, or does it have to do with the Airbus manufacturing in South Carolina? It doesn't actually. No, I was there for. I was there for Bloomberg. I thought it was Boeing. I thought it was Boeing in by Charleston Airport. Or is it Airbus uh, too? Uh, I said. Um, you got me thinking. Uh, Bloom, now. Uh, Airbus is in Atlanta, is in Alabama, isn't it? Yeah, I think Boeing's Charleston. Yep, yep, yep. I think you're absolutely right. Charlie, good to see you. You too. Let's do it again tomorrow. I look forward to it. Me too. Got to, imagine, got to imagine, Guy, that the airlines, some of them, and I'm not exaggerating here because you know the business very well, some of them must be on a brink. Yeah, so I think what happened after the financial crisis was that the big airlines kind of realised that they need to get their balance sheet sorted out. I was talking to Alex Cruz, who runs BA, about this kind of about 10 days ago, um, before this all got really messy for the airline sector. And and he was basically saying, look, post-2016, uh, we, we, we had to come in, um, sorry, 2007, we basically had to come in, and our job number one, and it took about five years, was to make sure that if there was a similar kind of impact in terms of demand, that we would have the balance sheet to be able to weather it. Um, so I think the, the the big kind of carriers are in much better shape. There's also been quite a lot of consolidation as well, uh, which probably will will provide a little bit of insulation when it comes to this story. Um, the other factor you've got to bear in mind is as well that the big carriers have been having problems with some of their leading aircraft. Um, it's not just the 737 MAX. There have been other aircraft as well, 787s that have got Rolls-Royce engines on them uh, and various other kind of aircraft as well. Uh, and uh, what I heard was that some of the uh, the airlines are using this as an opportunity, maybe 
maybe to to cycle some of those aircraft back through the shops uh, to get them fixed up in a way that they they wouldn't have been able to do if they was going to maintain their schedules. So and the other factor as well is that oil prices are low. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to fully compensate, uh, but when it comes to the European carriers, a lot of people, I think for H1. I think some of the low-cost carriers are already will, will have already sold out 75% of their seats. Yeah, I think already. United was saying the same thing about Q1 over here. In fact, Luke, maybe you can weigh in on that. United, with their Q1 guidance, effectively said that the lower oil price offset some of the softness in traffic, but it was the back half that they're a little bit worried about with bookings, yep. etc. Yeah, and like that's why you don't just you know uh, talk about Q1. You just withdraw the full-year guidance completely and say, like, we, this is just a noble at this point. Keeping this up would be just a charade anyways. So we're just going to pull the whole thing. And you know, honestly, I, I and I know you're kind of of the same mind on, on this, John. Surprised we haven't seen more of that. Surprise, we're still just seeing the cuts to Q1 <laughs> yeah. and then keeping the whole year. Since coronavirus first appeared in your Bloomberg market wrap, the 2020 EPS estimate for the S&P 500 is down uh, 0.7%. That seems like a number that's you know going Never to change. go lower. <laughs> <laughs> like, but the market's doing that work for the analysts right now, adjusting and adjusting hard. What's the significance of a 10% correction in six days? Six days ago, all-time highs in America, and we've delivered a 10% correction. Hmm, that's the significance. I don't, I don't know if there's like, anything about the magic 10% line. I, I think it's funny, you know, a couple of days ago, you... You could have said, you, I think there's an old trading axiom, like there's no such thing as a 7% correction. So you know, that's uh, we've blown past that pretty quickly. For, for me, what sticks out is this, is you can only get a sell-off of this magnitude with this speed if it's, if it's indiscriminate, if it's not just pricing and the potential realities and impacts of the coronavirus on specific companies. You have to be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And, and to that effect, some of the most richly valued software companies, they're down, uh, I believe, 13% over the past six sessions. Uh, industrials only down 10% over the past, over that time. So there's a big underperformance coming from the high flyers. This is much more a risk off than it was, you know, factor on off, which was all of January. Luke's going to stick with us. I raised last week and I discussed it with Luke too. To end this bull market, the bears need a couple of things. And two of them, I think, is to see this batter services and eat into the labor market after manufacturing weakened through much of last year, but didn't hurt services. And the second one, I think you really need a loss of faith in the market's uh, faith in the Fed put. I'm not sure if we're there yet. We can talk about it next on this program with Luke. The S&P 500 coming back just a little bit. It's down by 7 tenths of 1%. From New York and London, this is The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area and around the world on all of your Bloomberg devices. The S&P um, is continuing to climb. We're only down by seven-tenths of 1% now, only 23 points off where we opened. We're trading at 30.92, some signs of stabilisation. Luke, what do you make of the turnaround that we're starting to see? What do you think it's driven by? What do you think the mentality of the market is? Uh, just sometimes you go down too far too fast, like there's, yep. and it's you know possible to, uh, you know, then get a bounce off of off of pretty much nothing. Uh, some friends pointed out, uh, found it interesting that right about the time we would expect kind of trend following investors to be uh, leaving the market is is around the time we bought them today. So perhaps that kind of tells you where the where the selling pressure was coming from, and then people uh, of a more uh, 
of a more discriminating nature were able to step in and buy what they wanted. So that's uh, I I find it a, a very hard to kind of read into this as any kind of meaningful turnaround. I think we're still let's check. Uh, we're still right around or below that uh, that 200-day moving average. Oh no, we're we're back above it on uh, on yeah. futures. So that's you know, I guess I guess an encouraging sign. What I found weird though today, and it's not something I've heard traders discuss for a while. Oh, was I was hearing this morning? We have to sell now. We have to sell today because we're going to be selling on Friday ahead of the weekend. Because we know that on Monday we're going to be getting news inevitably about coronavirus cases spreading in the U.S. So just this kind of very twisted, we have to front run the front running of the front running. <laughs> and I, that, uh, that to me is a, a new kind of market psyche that I haven't experienced in quite some time. We've had a few really weak Fridays, I think three of them on the idea that the weekend is not going to produce the best of news or at least the risk of that happening. Look, you raised something really important on my program yesterday and I turned to Michael Cusper and Morgan Stanley and basically just repeated the question to him. Treasuries are outperforming in global fixed income. Treasury yields down more than, say, bond yields. And I think some people in the fixed income market thinking a lot about this, about what's going on, about why we're seeing the outperformance in the treasury market. Why is that the case, Luke? I think uh, Mr. Kushma there hit, hit the nail on the head. It's it's a seemingly obvious reason, but then the implications of that are are, are meaningful. People are going to treasuries because you know, you want the world's reserve currency. You want that as your safe haven uh, asset of choice, a.k.a. this is a kind of financial-based flight to safety. This is not indicative of you know how much the coronavirus is expected to impact the U.S. economy relative to the German economy. I think we're like almost down twice as much as a German boon yield uh, over since you know since late January. And you know, of course, we have potentially further to fall in yield state side than uh, than German yields do, just based on uh, whatever effective absolute zero you want to point to. But but to me, this just points to the fact that. What we've known for about a year, what we've been debating for about a year, what are these signals we're getting from the yield curve? And I, I do think they are diluted by the fact that this is much more visibly, measurably, measurably uh, an artifact of financial market flight to safety, not implications for the real economy. So if and when this ever ends, I, I think you could see a situation where the, the bounce in Treasury yields is quite profound, but the V-shaped recovery in the economy just really isn't. Hmm. Do you think I is there a sense over there that the ECB is done? I I think there's a a general sense right now among market participants that uh or at least something that's starting to come in is that uh most central banks do not want to respond to this and that they will be uh almost pledging to be behind the curve. Robert Kaplan for instance this week he kind of reinvoked the patient word and as we learned last year what separates patients from uh, willingness to act as appropriate as one is pledging to do nothing and the other is pledging to do something. Uh, Fed seems back in that box, and that seems very difficult uh, for the for the market to be wrapping its head around right now because next week, I believe on Friday, there's a big monetary policy forum, and that's right when blackout before the next Fed meeting starts. If not by then, if the Fed hasn't pushed back against cut expectations in the very near term by then... Uh, it would not be hard to imagine the possibility of the Fed failing to cut and markets really reacting negatively. Luke Cower, fantastic to catch up with you. The next Fed decision, March 18th. Next up, we catch up with Buyer's CEO. From London and New York for London, this is The Cable. 
This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. From the city of London, from New York City, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow bringing you some of the latest price action worldwide in Europe on the FTSE 100 down by 3.5% on the equity benchmark in Frankfurt, Germany on the DAX down by 3%. Call it 3.2% at the close. Guy, the S&P 500 it's messy down by 8 tenths of 1% but it was a whole lot worse. Six days taking 10% off the S&P 500. A correction after being at all time high just six days ago we're down by eight tenths of one percent on the day so far but maybe the headline for me guys in the bond market to see the two-year where it is right now down four basis points to 1.12 percent and 10-year yields at 132 really quite remarkable stuff Let's get the latest, shall we, from the buyer CEO. He caught up with Bloomberg's Tom Keane and Adam Edwards a little bit earlier on. This is what he had to say. First of all, we've had uh, a really great year, very good results, and uh, we uh, are very, very happy that we could really deliver on everything that we said we were going to do uh, as we disclosed uh, at uh, just about this time a year last year when we gave our guidance 2019. So uh, whether it's top line, whether it's EBITDA, core EPS, uh, we've done quite well. Uh, also coming to your point uh, on uh, delivering the company, uh, it's gone a little bit better than uh, uh, we right. had anticipated, uh, more than $4 billion in free cash flow. Uh, and with that, uh, I think we have a quite solid balance sheet uh, also for you know, some of the challenges that are ahead so of So are us you still. saying, sir, that you do not need to go for a cash call here? Well, I think that's way too early. We are working diligently with uh, the dual path uh, approach that uh, uh, you know about. Uh, on one side, we continue to litigate the cases uh, that we have lost in first instance. Uh, on the other side, we continue to work very, very diligently and cooperatively uh, with uh, the mediation group uh, under Ken Feinberg's leadership. Uh, and we first have to know where we are going to end up before right. I can answer that question well, specifically. Sir, Mr. Bauman, I'm going to give you great credit for stability through 2019, even with a recent rollover for whatever the issues are. Your stock is down 52% from 2015. This has been a busted transaction. Your chairman has got some serious issues out the door. What is the management stability right now at your good company? Well, we've uh, you know, just uh, brought in actually quite a number of new board members. Uh, all of them are doing very, very well, as is documented by the strong results that you've seen uh, for uh, fiscal 2019. As a matter of fact, uh, three out of uh, the five operating board members have been with the company in their positions for less than two years, uh, all with great credentials. So I believe that uh, the team is uh, very, very strong. Uh, you've seen... Uh, the announcement that uh, Mr. Wenning is going to hand over uh, the chairmanship of uh, the supervisory board to uh, Mr. Winkel-Johan, who has been a uh, member of the supervisory board since 2018. It's been really, really great uh, to have uh, worked under Mr. Wenning's leadership uh, and uh, his leadership for uh, the uh, supervisory board. And now we are looking forward to uh, having the first independent uh, and uh, uh, new chairman who does not have an operating history uh, as an executive in the company. 
Okay, Werner, good morning to you. Uh, does the supervisory board, with, with the strengths that you've just described, is there a, a lack of expertise, though, in agriculture and in the U.S., in the areas that you are experiencing these difficulties? Uh, do you, I mean, the new chairman comes with, a, I think, an accounting background, a German business background. Do you think that you need more expertise in the supervisory board on agriculture and, and the U.S. business? Well, uh, if you look at the composition of our board, uh, uh, of course, uh, Mr. Winkeljohan brings uh, some great expertise that is, I still think, quite complementary to the rest of the expertise uh, that is already resident in the board. Uh, he has uh, led a very large organization in Europe. Uh, he has been a member of a global uh, executive team at PwC, one of the biggest uh, auditing and consulting firms uh, uh, that are around. Uh, he has pushed very, very hard for digitization, which is a key topic for all of our businesses. And then don't forget uh, you know, to look at the other additions uh, that have uh, you know, uh, been uh, made to uh, the board. One very, I think, prominently, uh, Ethrin Cousin, uh, who uh, was uh, uh, the head of the Global uh, World Food Program um, uh, at the United Nations. Uh, she joined uh, last year uh, an expert uh, in uh, U.S. politics, an expert uh, in agriculture, uh, an expert in food. We have Colleen Goggins, uh, who uh, chaired uh, the uh, U.S. consumer business uh, at J&J. &J. So uh, there's uh, no lack of U.S., nor is there a lack of uh, uh, industry expertise uh, at the board. Mm. Uh, we have great scientists with Mr. Wiesler or uh, okay. Mr. Wischofberger, who was uh, the head of R&D uh, at, uh, at Gilead. So I would say a very, very strong balance of expertise at the board. So you would push back. Uh, but, you know, so you'd push I'm back in on charge that, of on that the point. operating board and not supervisory board. Let me ask you, uh, to Tom's um, point, Tom was, asking you about the, Tom was asking you about the need to raise funds. Your CFO has said that there is a need to consider raising funds, despite the fact that uh, you have the resources to cover the potential settlements, was his assessment. So if you do need to raise funds, are you leaning towards new equity? Are you leaning towards borrowing money? What, what would be the, the preferred route? Well, uh, your FEF disclosed uh, in, uh, in our annual reports, first of all, all sources of uh, uh, um, uh, uh, liquidity uh, would be available to us. Uh, the question then is, uh, what is the most commonsensical uh, thing to do? And we are, of course, very uh, cognizant of uh, uh, our shareholder base. But uh, you know, without going much further, uh, I have to come back to what I said earlier. First of all, we need to know what it is, uh, and then we solve for you know, the structure of the financing. The bar CEO there, Werner Baumann, speaking to Bloomberg's Tom Keane and Anna Edwards. For the markets, it has not been a great six days for equity markets worldwide. Tomorrow, the attention will be on something that happens after the market close. The latest data out of China. We'll bring you a preview. Alongside Guy Johnson, I'm Jonathan Farrow from New York and London. This was The Cable. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio.